Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Hey Adam, I feel I need to apologise. What for? Did I jinx things at the end of Friday's show by wondering if it was going to be our last weekend under lockdown? Yeah, you blew it. It's going to be a pretty quiet Anzac weekend. Sorry. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Monday the 20th of April, seven days before the end of lockdown. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main stories, glimpses of some of the unusual things about lockdown life and a closer look at one particular topic. It's been a weird day for most New Zealanders, I reckon, sort of hanging around, waiting for 4pm to find out what the decision would be. We are united as a nation of instant epidemiologists, statisticians and modellers, and microbiologists opining and guessing. But now we know. Yeah, I tried to distract myself by seeing what was going on around the world news-wise, you know, other things. For instance, I thought I'd check out what's happening with peace talks in Afghanistan. Had a look. What do I find? At least 40 staff members in Afghanistan's presidential palace in Kabul have tested positive for COVID-19. So you can't escape it, but talk about a country which can't catch a break, as if decades of war and the re-emergence of the Taliban weren't enough. Later in the show, we have clinical psychologist and parenting expert Natalie Flynn. She picks over some of the trickier issues of the continuing lockdown, like if your teenage has just fallen in love and wants to sneak out. But first, what's happened today, as if we didn't already know? Yeah, well, the big news, New Zealand will move out of alert level four at one minute to midnight, Monday, April 27. The country will then be in alert level three for two more weeks before being reviewed by cabinet on May 11. Holding on until after the Anzac Day long weekend means sacrificing two more business days than the original four week period. Jacinda Ardern said it was possible for New Zealand to come out of lockdown in part because of our low transmission rate. That's the number of new cases that one infectious person can generate in the community. Our number is 0.48. Overseas, the average is 2.5. There's also the fact that random tests carried out over the weekend have all been negative, meaning there's no evidence of widespread undetected community transmission. You know, but as lawyer friends say, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, which is, I guess, why we're all having to commit to holding to level three for another two weeks. And it would seem rude to not do the daily numbers update, eh? So here it is, nine new cases of coronavirus in the past 24 hours, taking the total to 1,440 cases. Even as we move out of lockdown, obviously there's still a lot of anxiety about COVID. And one of the outlets for that is the COVID-19 hotline. Katerina Williams is a stuff reporter in Wellington. Katerina, you've been talking to operators at the COVID-19 hotline. First of all, what is the hotline? So the hotline is to receive calls um, from the general public and answering um, issues relating to COVID-19, getting direction on where um, to go and get testing, seeking advice, those types of issues. In a normal week, the the call centres that Home Care Medical run, so that's like Quitline, Self uh, Safe to Talk, the Alcohol Drug and help, Drug Helpline, as well as Healthline, would be around seven thousand calls per week. Once we hit the whole month of March, that number exploded to one hundred and sixty-six thousand calls, and that is an increase of sort of two thousand two hundred and seventy-one percent. And in order to To keep up with that call flow, telehealth services had initially 450 employees. That figure has now grown to 1,100 staff, um, and they're operating across call centres and also from their homes. Right. And, And what did you find out? 
So in this story, I kind of decided that I wanted to contrast someone who'd come on really early on in the process. So I found a, I found a person, Cheryl Fife, um, and she'd talked. She'd been a nurse, sort of um, with Healthline. And then I got someone who also, um, Ginny Douglas, who's a tele-triage nurse, who's only just sort of come on um, in the past four weeks. So she's never done that kind of role before. For me, it was a, it was an important story to tell, to see what it was like from the other side, um, what kind of issues that they were facing. So what are the callers telling someone like Cheryl once they get through? What kind of issues have they got? What I thought was quite interesting about this was that um, a lot of them were, were calling in and they were just scared. Um, they were frustrated. They were they were scared about the situation and they were looking for guidance. And I think um, the people that were at the end of those phone lines were offering that kind of um, support. Um, and it was a real person to speak to as opposed to, you know, the 1pm appointment viewing that we have at a press conference that everyone seems to be watching at the moment. But a lot of people were calling in. They heard someone cough at a supermarket um, or they were worried that, you know, they, they'd picked up um, a, a snuffly nose and wondering what to do. And obviously there'd been a lot of confusion over um, what the different levels meant and those and getting clarity over those kind of things was something that a lot of these people were calling up about. So Katerina Williams, you're actually in the in the stuff newsroom, so we better let you get back to it. But um thank you very much for joining us. It must seem it must seem a little bit strange at the moment being in there. Yeah, there's very few of us in here. I think there's only two others here and um, everyone else is working remotely. We, um, yeah, and it's, it's a weird situation when you have 200 colleagues in your newsroom and only three people at one time now. Most countries are doing some kind of version of lockdown. Uh, I mean, there's debate everywhere. There's debate in New Zealand. We've got the Plan B crowd who are suggesting that elimination's a bad idea and we should just be mitigating. You know, in the United States, you've you've literally got gun-waving conservative protesters marching in public for the right to catch the virus. But mostly, although there's conversation going on and some argument, around the world, most countries are on some version of the same page, except Sweden. Yeah, look, this is hardly breaking news. I mean, everyone's been aware of what's been going on in Sweden. In fact, frankly, watching like a hawk. Uh, we've just checked in again, looking at this piece on stuff that came from the Telegraph in London. So basically what's happened over the weekend is that Sweden's infectious diseases chief has said that parts of the country could achieve herd immunity as early as next month. I think that was going to be in Stockholm. He's saying that the rate of new, new cases is peaking for the first time. Deaths, though, continue to climb. You know, Sweden's got that approach where they've left kindergartens, schools, restaurants, cafes and bars open, uh, and they're sort of claiming a, a tentative victory there. So the, the state epidemiologist over there is saying, according to our modelers, we're starting to see so many immune people in the population in Stockholm that it is starting to have an effect on the spread of the infection. But what's happening there is almost the mirror image of what's happening in New Zealand, isn't it? You've got contrarians over there saying there should be a lockdown. You know, here we've got the, the opposite happening. But over there, you've got a, a fierce uh, opposition who was saying, we're doing this wrong. You know, we're putting people's lives at risk and pointing to the fact that in Finland, the cumulative number was 13 dead per million inhabitants, whereas in Sweden, it's 130 per million and, and sort of questioning what's to be hopeful about it. So 
it's an interesting debate, isn't it? And it's kind of, like Adam says, the debate that's happening all around the world. It's just in Sweden, it's happening kind of in reverse. Bit of an announcement from the bosses today. So we know that times were already very tough for media before COVID. And, and to be blunt, the virus is just another body blow. So we're asking people to help out. So from today, they've made it possible for those who want to support Stuff Journalism to make a direct digital donation. It's called the Stuff Supporter Program, and it helps fund the reporting that Stuff does right across the country. And Adam, fair to say, it helps us be able to keep doing what we're doing, right? So some organisations have gone for a, a paywall approach around the world and here in New Zealand. Others down this route of giving readers and listeners and viewers a way to donate. And that's that's what Stuff has, has chosen to do. So if you want to contribute and support us in that way, you'll find a link on the website, stuff.co.nz. So I've just followed the link and uh, scrolling down, this explains how it works, how to click some suggested figures, $10 a month or $100 a year, or you choose. I guess you can just give us a million dollars if you really want to. Um, but you keep scrolling down, explains why journalism is awesome, which we all know. And then, horrifyingly, it has mugshots of a large number of our colleagues, including, I regret to say, us. Oh, no. I'm, I'm going to guess mine's that one that makes me look like a Scandi noir character. Is that right? Yeah, you look like a corrupt Finnish politician who's just about to do something really awful in the in the bushes with a dead body. Mm. Yeah, you know the one. Which is better than mine, to be frank. I look like I've just been told the funniest joke in the history of comedy. And it doesn't feel very on brand for COVID-19, actually. But anyway, anyway. What's the point of the... Oh, please don't tell me that you can click on the journalist you want to support and this is going to become like some journalistic beauty contest or something, is it? I think that's a superb no. idea. I'm going to donate $1,000 to Todd Nile right now. Actually, it doesn't work like that. Actually, one of our listeners is seriously ahead of the curve here. Simon Noble is someone who, in fact, started off finding us quite annoying because we made an error when talking about David Clark's rogue bike ride back in the day. Yeah, remember that was that whole thing about us calling the mountain bike park remote when it wasn't. And we did apologise. We did. Since, since then... He's listened to a Helen Clark interview and said that he rather liked it. So I'm putting him down in the possible fan category. But most importantly, in his most recent email to us, he said, one thing I'm deaf's going to do is donate to stuff to keep you going. Oh, well done there, man. Cheers, Simon. Uh, we're getting lots of emails, actually, almost into three figures. Uh, loads of plague playlist suggestions. We'll get to some of those later. Um, but I do need to respond directly to Kirill Lugutin who says some nice things about the show and then asks, just one question, is there a way to see or find the Plague Playlist? Sorry, Carol, the Plague Playlist exists purely in serialised form across each day's podcast. We've never actually written it down. But if we did write it down, we'd certainly start the list with, thank you, back potato. Oh, for goodness sake. Hey, part of the reason the mailbag is getting heavier, though, is that last week we ran that interview with Helen Clark, who had a bit of a crack at Donald Trump. Look, I'm not going to read out much of that mailbag, to be honest, because I'd have to put on the biohazard suit and the thick rubber gloves and like the whole mask thing. And frankly, other people need PPE more than I do. But here's a flavour. From Mr. Max. This is not an epidemic. Okay. From John. This woman is an idiot and doesn't have a clue. Go Donald 2020. Mm-hmm. And from Walter. Actually, I can't read this one out. We're not really meant to swear on the podcast, but trust me, it's reasonably offensive. Yeah, there's a, there's a few more in that vein, but I think, I think you get the idea. I might be biased, but my favourite email on the subject was someone called Brenda, and she says, thank you for this in-depth, enlightening view. So that's the kind of feedback we like. Right, plague playlist. So when we started looking for COVID-19 songs, I really thought it was going to be hard to keep up 
with a new one every day. But it turns out the hive mind of the internet is such that actually all you need to do is think of a likely parody basis for a Corona song and someone will have already done it. So um, I've had sort of dun 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 my Corona, you know, bouncing around my head for a week or two. I googled it and guess what? I Well, that sounds fun. Why am I out here risking my life, Corona? That's from a guy called Chris Mann. So, having listened to that version, Adam, are you still going to go ahead with your version on the ukulele? I don't see why not. Give me two six. My Corona. Is it going to be a hit? Natalie Flynn is an Auckland clinical psychologist and author. She wrote the book Smart Mothering. Uh, She's an expert on parenting. Hi there, Natalie. Hi. So as we were prepping for this chat, Natalie, Eugene and I were wondering what to talk about with a psychologist. And we realized that to some extent, after more than three weeks of lockdown, we're kind of starting to lose the plot, really. I don't know if that's the um, precise psychological term. Uh, So what about you? How's, How's your bubble and your sanity? Uh, well, uh, first my sanity. I've given myself a thorough assessment and I think that I'm doing okay. Uh, my bubble is humming along pretty well at the moment. Some days are better than other days, but you know, I'm lucky in that, as you would hope, I have a lot of skills to at my disposal, being a psychologist, to keep the house calm and to prioritise you know, what's important. And what is that house? Who are your bubble mates? My husband, my three children, and two dogs and a cat. You're a clinical psychologist. You can't do any hands-on stuff. So how are you working? So I'm working through Zoom, through FaceTime, uh, all those mediums. And I'm pretty much running an ordinary clinic, but just not seeing people in person. The reason we've called you is we're interested to hear what you're hearing from your clients, from your colleagues, about how families in New Zealand are coping with lockdown and, and uh, you know, and a pandemic. Yeah, so of course it's really tough. And, and I just, you know, want to say that it's no picnic in my bubble either, but yeah, things haven't reached crisis point. <laughs> uh, so what I've been hearing is from my clients in particular and, and from friends and colleagues is... I guess what's most confronting is that very quickly we've all been thrown into a situation where we need to prioritise different areas for our family uh, that we didn't foresee. So people are talking to me about the tension between balancing finances, you know, paid work, and their children's curiosity and stimulation, for example. You know, that's a really big tension. Um, Having to look at different values that we didn't have to before. So, you know, I value socialising, but I also value health and I would have to call the police on my teenager if he (laughs) wanted to socialise with friends. So, you know, there's just so much to consider. And then the stress and anxiety, the, you know, overlay of emotions. So people are just generally feeling overwhelmed and their minds are swimming with so many choices, choices about values, choices between, um, you know, finances and spending time with family and screen time and, you know, it's very overwhelming. 
so everyone is in a in a different situation. So Eugene and I have both got a teenager or teenagers around, and so we're finding that pretty self managing. Apart from we, I do have certain issues with. Um, <laughs> thumping noises coming through the walls when I'm trying to record a thing. But I cast my mind back to when my kids were, you know, in the range of eight to 10 or four to six or two to four and think this would be incredibly hard. So do, do you have a picture of, of who's doing it toughest, I guess? Yeah. And, and what I've been encouraging people to do is if they're upset by social media to really try and stay off it because there isn't any point comparing one bubble with another. The situations are all different. You know, obviously people that have tiny kids and are in full-time work, you know, are doing it really, really tough. But then you can have some people who from the outside, it looks pretty calm. They've got a couple of teenagers, but you don't know what's going on with those teenagers. You know, I'm hearing stories about uh, teenagers who have fallen in love for the first time and are wanting to sneak out. And, you know, so there's difficulties in most bubbles. And then kids have different temperaments. So 40% of kids have what we call cruisy temperaments. They go with the flow, they adapt to new situations. And then you've got 60% that have other temperaments. And no temperament is better than any other, but just some kids are easier to parent in a situation like lockdown than other kids who are more intense, more fiery, you know, need more physical activity. So you just can't really tell from the outside what's going on in a bubble. There are families who are finding this a strangely lovely opportunity to spend some time with their kids and and with each other. And sure, everyone has tense moments and problems, but there is some real connection happening as well. Absolutely. And one of the questions that I had posed to me recently was, uh, I'm a mother with some children at home and I'm having a really nice time. Should I feel guilty? And my answer was, no, of course you shouldn't feel guilty, but you can use the fact that you're feeling good and that you're feeling resilient uh, to allow other people to lean on you. So when anyone phones me, any of my friends, for example, I ask them how they're feeling and we check in with each other and whoever is most resilient, you know, we, we lean on that person. So we tag team really. Yeah. You mentioned school, and obviously that's a real point of tension. Yeah. What do you think is the best way to cope with that whole scenario of suddenly your home is also your kid's classroom? I think that what's happening is that emotions are so high at the moment that it can be really difficult to take our emotions out of it and take a reasonable or more rational approach. Uh, So for primary school students, you know, we've got some really good evidence out of American studies, actually, that for primary school kids, at least over the long summer break, and this research uh, started in the 80s, you know, some might wonder why I'm calling on old research. But what's so lovely about this research was that it was at a time where kids weren't generally hothoused over the summer holidays. So it was a really long break. And, you know, what the research found time and time again, it was replicated, is that in most families where children are just talked to, included, there's no formal education, that their cognition, creativity, that all of that still makes gains over the summer holidays. What is lost is 
some of the knowledge that needs replication, such as spelling and arithmetic, but within a month, all that knowledge was gained again. So really when people are making choices, rather than feeling emotional and, oh my God, you know, my kids should be in school. What if they fall behind? What if they're not learning? You know, take a step back and really look at this rationally. And, you know, for just about all primary school kids, it's just really not going to make any difference and it's not worth a fight. You've talked about parents who who are getting tense. What about kids? Kids get tense and uptight about being behind as well. So kids get really tense and uptight. And again, with primary school children, it's about reassuring them. Look, if you're playing and taking a break and relaxing or doing whatever you're doing, it's okay. You know, there's nothing to say that you'll fall behind. It's all right. Let's spend this time doing some other things. Uh, And this is a good time to talk about uh, one of those other things being perhaps screens. So for parents who are working and their primary school child doesn't want to engage in the curriculum, then the next question is, well, what do we do with them? And of course, traditionally, you know, we advise parents to be judicious with screens because we want children to be doing other things. But there's nothing in the literature to show that, you know, for a short time, a month or two even, that overuse of screens is going to do anything long-term to a child. But what we do know very clearly from the literature is that kids living in a vortex of stress or shouting or arguments, you know, that can do some lasting damage with parent-child relationships that need to be repaired. So for me, if it's a choice between shouting and Minecraft, I'm going to choose Minecraft every time in my bubble. That sounds like extremely good advice. One of the causes of that stress and freaking out from parents is finances. Um, Eugene and I have just been invited to take a 15% pay cut and we were talking about it earlier this morning. I was just noticing that during the rest of the day after we got that news, I could just feel this sort of pall hanging over. It's it's kind of weird because I think, okay, look, be, you know, be realistic. I'll slow down the mortgage a teeny bit. It's only for a limited period of time. There are lots of people who are worse off than me. Um, we've all got to do our bit, blah, blah, blah. But there was an edge was taken off the, the rest of that day. And for people who are suffering more, more than that, it must be really, really tough. And so how, how do you insulate your kids from that kind of angst? Finances. You know, this is such a huge and real problem for so many families and that parents should not feel guilty if they're choosing financial stability, you know, perhaps again over overuse of screens because what we do know from the literature is that poverty, you know, that influences so many things in a child's life. So if you're making the choice between letting your kid watch screens while you work really hard to keep your home and keep your children warm, then that's a really valid choice. Uh, Now, as for talking with kids about finances, this is something that parents have been asking me about because children are saying, can we still live in a certain way? The difficulty is that for most of us, we just don't know how this is going to pan out. So first of all, what's really important is to let your child lead the conversation. Um, So find out how much they know and then correct them 
if they're catastrophizing, but also it's an opportunity to tell children what will remain stable. You know, I, I can't tell you with any certainty what's going to happen, whether or not we're going to have to shift house, but I can tell you that my job is to keep you safe and loved and that I'll make sure that, you know, your future is bright right? And so they're really going to take the lead from us, how stressed we look when we're talking about this with children. And for some people, you know, they really are going to have to break it to their kids. Yeah, we are selling the family home and it's going to be tough. Uh, And it's about all the adults in the bubble supporting each other. You know, this is a serious issue. Some people will uh, feel suicidal if they're unemployed after, you know, working in a job for a number of years, for example, and how well their mental health does, you know, largely depends on how people, how other adults respond around them. That's really important to be on the same songbook, isn't it? On the same song sheet. It is. And also to take the leads from your kids. I made one mistake with, uh, with one of my children. I was feeling anxious and I burst into my 13-year-old's room and said, you don't need to worry. We're not going to sell the house. And she said, I wasn't thinking that right. at all. Yeah. I thought, oh, yeah. You just put that in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, we don't know what they're worrying about. For the older kids that might have more of an idea of what's going on financially, if we're going to take a big drop, uh, what I suggest is to say to the kids, look, you're the children. We're the adults. We're responsible for budgeting and for finances, this is not something that you need to think about. You know, if you're worried about it, we'll talk about it, but it's not on you. So younger kids are one issue, but what about high school kids? They've got NCEA and and all the pressures that come with that in in the ordinary year. Look, some children are going to be impacted if this goes on for a long time. And the most important thing to do is to first validate whatever your high school child is saying to you, there's no point if a kid who, you know, really has had his or her heart set on an A, for example, and it looks like, you know, perhaps they might go down to a B, there's no point saying, don't worry about it, it doesn't matter, because to that child it might. And so the first thing to do is to validate and say, yeah, look, you know, this is really hard, I I understand, but that probably this won't have any impact, you know, on what you do in the future, right, and an A compared to a B. But then we also need to get real that there are a small group of children who are at high school, say in year 13, and really have been internally driven and motivated to get into elite courses. And this might have an impact on them. And so what I'd say to these children are, look, you know, you haven't been forgotten. The ministry is thinking about ways to make this up, you know, uh, perhaps when you go back, you'll have extra tutoring or perhaps they'll leave out a module that needs to be examined on. So it's just really validating that, that yeah, this is really tough, but people are trying to work their way through it. All right. Well, Adam and I need to get back to our teenagers. You need to get back to your kids and check on them and then get back to work. So we'd better let you go. But thank you so much for joining us. Okay, no problem. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Monday the 20th of April. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Katerina Williams, Natalie Flynn, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. 
Thanks for joining us for the start of week five of the podcast. You can find us on all the usual podcast platforms, plus at the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us via our email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Pretty yavade. Thank you.